the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter 17, Crossing. We have to go back, Susan whispered. Aw, man. Why? What? There's a checkpoint on the road up ahead, whispered Susan. Heather and Aaron leaned in to hear details. Blake sat down with a huff of a sigh. Soldiers? Aaron asked. I don't think so. The two trucks blocking the road aren't military. One is a smaller highway department truck. The other is a county assessor's pickup. Susan felt some encouragement with her news. The fact that the authorities sent low-level public workers to man the checkpoint told her that the little road wasn't important enough for the limited supply of guardsmen. Are they sitting in the trucks? Aaron peered over Susan, but the trucks were hidden by trees. I didn't see anyone in either truck. So why can't we just go on through? asked Heather. When the drivers walk back to their trucks, they might see our snowshoe prints. They're in the farmhouse, just up the road. There are lights in a couple of windows. Someone is up, even at this hour. The stream bed has been good cover, but it goes right past the house. Too risky. So why not just go around? Blake snarked. We will, but it has to be back south a little, and go around to the east. The house is surrounded by flat fields. We'll leave Prince. A little ways back, I saw a good spot to cross the road. We can go up the other side and stay in the woods. Susan showed them how to use tarps to leave minimal indentations in the smooth snow on the road. She had them go across first. She went last and used a pine branch to brush the gentle dents and soften their edges. She imagined that even low-level government workers would recognize obvious footprints, but would have a less attentive eye for subtle signs. They also might not change guard all that frequently, so she and the family might be long gone before the workers saw anything. Clouds drifted in and hid the North Star. Susan relied on her compass to follow a north-northeast heading as best they could over the hilly terrain. A high haze diffused the light of the crescent moon, making travel trickier. She kept a slower pace, probing with her walking stick like a blind person. If she read her map correctly, they had crossed the border into Vermont. Man, are we there yet? Blake complained. I bet we don't even know where there is. Now, Blake, his mother had a harsh tone, I spoke to you about all of this. We're doing the best we can. I do know where I want to get to, said Susan, and I just found a sort of highway to take us there. This power line? Aaron peeked between the trees at a broad clearing beneath truss towers. Is this your highway? Yep. I'm trying to get to the hydro dam at Vernon. That seems like a pretty sure bet that some of these big power lines like these will lead right to it. You're going to a power dam? asked Aaron. Why? Who cares? said Blake. I want another break. My legs are totally aching. Well, you have gone almost two miles. Susan tried not to let her comment drip with too much sarcasm, 
but she did want a little to get through. Exactly. Blake didn't catch her innuendo. Susan thought she ought to curb her tongue. Internal conflict wouldn't help her get to the bridge any faster. I'm going to sleep up against that tree over there. Blake trudged off melodramatically. We're only stopping for a half an hour, Susan cautioned. She had resigned herself to the slow pace, but felt less anxious about it now that they were in Vermont. From what she had heard, Vermont's governor didn't implement the full Canton system, like Massachusetts had. The voluntary compromise system in Vermont suggested a less ideologically zealous approach to the crisis, federal authority, and the siege. Susan reasoned that Vermont guardsmen wouldn't be as aggressive about patrolling the backwoods. Can I sleep a little too, Mom? Aaron asked. Sure. Go sleep against the same tree as Blake. Hey, why can't she get her own tree? Blake, she can lean against the same tree. I want to be able to keep an eye on both of you in the same eyeful. Now don't waste your sleeping time arguing with me. Blake grumbled about injustice and being bossed around. Aaron wrapped up in her sleeping bag and settled against the opposite side of Blake's tree. Susan and Heather leaned against another tree a dozen feet away, both wrapped in tarps. Must be tough, Susan pointed with a nod toward the brother and sister. She didn't envy the thankless task of family peacekeeper. It always has been, but especially nowadays. The stuff I worried about before, grades, bullies, dating, that sort of thing, it seems so trivial now. Heather nestled her chin into her hands. Now it's will they get a next meal. Hmm, Susan nodded. Much of what seemed so important before simply vanished from people's lives when the power went out. Heather continued talking without looking at Susan, as if she were talking to herself. The pale moonlight erased the worry lines and middle-aged creases in her face. She looked like she could have been sixteen. The sister that Susan sometimes wished she had when she was growing up. She had imagined a sister as a confidant and a commiserator. This is all so unfair. Heather still didn't look up. All I wanted was a quiet life, you know? A house in a nice neighborhood, kids playing on a green lawn, a man around to keep it all working. Susan felt awkward trying to comfort a woman she had only met that morning. Yeah, um, sorry about losing your husband and all. Thanks, but I kind of lost him several years ago. For a while, he was great. He had a good job in the city. He worked on the lawn on the weekends, painted the shutters, changed the oil in the car. She sighed deeply. Susan puzzled that Heather's summary of her late husband was that of a live-in handyman. She didn't know Heather, but chalked it up to her focusing on the current lack of routine and stability. Heather was engaged in some therapeutic rambling, so interruption for analysis was out of bounds. It would be better to just let her ramble. Then he watched his show or something. Uh, I don't know. Whatever it was, it changed him. He started worrying about stuff. Crazy stuff. Epidemics, volcanoes, nuclear, electro, something, somethings. He was too busy to play with the kids. I had to mow the lawn myself. Busy with what? Simple questions were within bounds. 
buying that crazy stuff that just sat in the garage. Tools, packages of oh, God only knows. He even bought a gun. I didn't know what to say. What could I say? My friends would have freaked out if I told them, but I couldn't tell them. Then, last year, he bought that land and built that cabin. We argued and fought about it a lot. It took most of our savings and the kids' college fund. He was like a whole other person that only looked like the Joe that I had married. Hmm. Susan didn't know what else to say. It sounded like her husband had become one of those television doom people. When the power went out, Joe got all frantic. He kept saying, it finally happened. But he could never tell me what it was that finally happened. He scared me. After a few days, he had the car loaded up with some of his garage stuff, and he told us to pack a suitcase. Susan tried to interject some positive. Well, from what I've heard of the cities during this outage, maybe it was a good thing he built the cabin. Heather looked at her with a tragic expression. Was it a good thing? Look at me. I'm sitting in the snow, in the middle of the wilderness, at midnight, homeless, and almost out of food for my kids. Susan felt hard-pressed to find a silver lining in Heather's circumstances. Yet she felt compelled to offer her one. That was what she imagined a sister would do. Well, I know this might sound kind of empty, but you are still free. Being captured could be far worse than being hungry. And, as long as there are pine trees, we won't starve. Oh, don't get me wrong, Heather rushed to say. I appreciate all you're doing for me and the kids. I didn't mean it to sound like... Susan patted her on the shoulder. Don't worry. I didn't take it that way. You've been through a lot of tough changes. Because it's been wonderful to have someone like you come along. I mean, you made us snowshoes. You, you know how to read a map. Your husband didn't show you how to read maps? Heather looked down. Well, no. But then I didn't want to learn. Whenever he started talking about what he called skills, it usually turned into an argument. Learning whatever it was that he was obsessing over felt like it would only be encouraging him in his craziness. I just wanted the old Joe back, the one who mowed the lawn and painted the shutters and took care of my nice little house. Susan sighed. Heather was mourning the loss of her former suburban life, almost more than the loss of her husband. It seemed like there was little Susan could say to help with that. She didn't feel like a very good sister. Our half hour is up, Susan said. I'll let you go wake the kids. Travel along the edge of the power line swath wasn't as easy as Susan had hoped. Even if she had led them through the cleared land of the cut instead of through the edge of the woods, the cut went up and over rugged terrain. It would still be tricky travel. The light from the crescent moon was diffused, giving little help with depth perception. The woods gave them tree trunks to hold on to as visual clues. Susan stopped them near the top of a wide hill. Something's up ahead, she whispered over her shoulder. Slow now and be very quiet. Odd, snow-covered shapes formed in a regular line along the crest of the clearing beneath the power lines. Susan's gut was instantly suspicious of any irregularity, all the more when she didn't know what they were. She didn't want to venture too deeply into the wood to avoid the shapes. 
The hill dropped off significantly enough to make footing treacherous. She decided that she should still follow the relatively level course of the power lines, but carefully. Approaching slowly amid the woods, they drew close enough to get a better look. Junk cars, whispered Heather. Lots of junk cars. Maybe we could sleep in them, suggested Blake. Susan took a few steps into the clearing to get a better look. Even in the dim light, she could see that many of the hulks were missing windows and doors. Scrubby saplings had grown up between them. The old sedan nearest her was missing its front door. She could see boxes of junk where the seats would have been. At least we would be out of the open, Blake whispered from behind her. Didn't I tell you to stay in the woods? Susan whispered harshly. You're just being bossy. Besides, what's the big deal? They're just junk cars. Doing whatever you like is a big deal. And no, these old cars won't give you any shelter. They're missing windows and they're full of junk. Then what about that building back there? Blake pointed over a second row of snow-covered hoods. He started walking toward it. Susan grabbed him by the arm. Where are you going? To check it out. Blake shook his arm free. You're not the boss. Now, Blake, scolded Heather, do what she says. She has a lot more experience with these sorts of things than we do. Come on back here. Blake stood in sullen defiance. Susan winced at Heather's pronouncement about how experienced she was. It wouldn't help matters to contradict her and confess to flying by the seat of her pants. Such candor would likely discourage Heather and Aaron who desperately wanted someone to tell them what to do. It would also embolden Blake, who also had no idea what to do, but enough ego to convince himself of his superior judgment. But we could sleep on a dry floor, insisted Blake. Why sleep in the snow when we could be dry? Something about the run-down old garage bothered Susan. The rust-streaked corrugated tin siding and loose wood trim suggested that the building hadn't been maintained for years before the outage. It had no sign, so appeared to have been a private garage workshop. The gable end held a small attic window. Stacks of junk stood beside the garage doors. The overhead doors hung partially closed at enough of an angle to suggest that they were broken. Only inky darkness showed in the openings. The two doors reminded her of a dead person's half-closed eyes. She wondered if her disquiet had anything to do with the building itself, or was a product of her own internal struggles. From the untouched snow in front of the doors, it was evident that no person or animal had been through those dead-eye doors. What was wrong with the building that even animals wouldn't go inside? There was a hint of an odd smell, too. It was too faint to identify easily. Whatever it was, it wasn't a natural smell. It wasn't the musty smell of wet upholstery rising from the junk cars, although she could smell traces of that. It was not the thick smell of old motor oil, although there were traces of that too. The odd extra smell bothered her. Anything odd made her feel less secure. No, she said at last, it doesn't look safe. It doesn't smell right either. Doesn't smell right? Seriously? Blake scoffed. Seriously, Susan said flatly. Let's keep going and find a better spot to rest. Blake grumbled, but his mother urged him to get in line. 
Susan led them along the edge of the woods until the land started to slope down steeply. To her right she saw a line of snow that didn't slope down. The line turned out to be a promontory. It was over twenty feet wide as it met the hill, narrowing to a rounded point. The two sides of the triangle were steep rocky faces. A camp on that promontory would be fairly secure. Nothing could approach from the two sides, only the one. Let's set up here, Susan said. You know the routine by now. Aaron and Blake, gather up pine branches. Lots of needles, no dead branches. Heather, let's you and I scoop away the snow over here. The three family members huddled together in the circle of pine boughs. Susan set herself up farther out on the promontory. She didn't like the prospect of dozing off while they slept, too, but physical and mental exhaustion overruled her objections. The water felt warm. Cotton ball clouds drifted overhead. She floated in a current, as if treading water, but didn't seem to have to move her arms or legs. When she was at the top of an ocean swell, she could see unbroken sea and sky all around her. When she was in the bottom, between the swells, she was in a crystal blue canyon. Susan woke suddenly, flailing her arms out. She opened her eyes to see Blake, frozen in mid-step toward her, still several yards away. Had he made some little sound that woke her? Did she somehow feel his presence and wake up? I was coming to wake you up. His eyes glanced sideways as he spoke. A little advice, Blake. Nowadays, be very careful when you wake someone. She flipped off the drone tarp to reveal the revolver in her lap. She tucked it into her waistband. Dawn had come above the gray overcast. Susan could see Heather rummaging in one of the backpacks, but Aaron wasn't in sight. Where's your sister? Uh, Aaron went to gather sticks. Mom wants to boil some water for breakfast. Well, it would be safer if you went with her, Susan said sternly. She reached into her backpack without taking her eyes off of Blake. Here's the hobo stove. Take it to your mother. Blake carried the little stove back to the circle, but kept looking over his shoulder. Susan had eaten the last of her pine fries. She also knew that the family had only enough food left for one meal for themselves. She would have to leave them alone for a while to gather some pine bark and maybe hunt. I'm going to go out and look for some pine bark, Susan announced to Heather. She could see Aaron returning. She beamed and held up two fistfuls of twigs. Thanks for gathering some fuel, but you really shouldn't stray from the group, Susan said. Aaron's smile collapsed. No, no, Susan added soothingly. It's great that you showed some ambition, working towards solutions. Susan didn't look at Blake, but her backdoor admonishment was intended for him. While I'm gone, you two can boil up some water for your remaining meal packs, but also boil up some rice. You can munch on the cold rice during the day. Blake, you need to stand guard. What? Why me? You're the man of the family, aren't you? Well, if I'm going to be a guard, I'll need your whistle, Susan finished his sentence. You have that orange one. I saw it in your stuff, said Susan. Hunker down behind that big tree over there, the one with that mound around it. You can see the campsite from there, and you can see up and down the power line cut. 
Blow the whistle if you see anyone. Got that? Blake glowered at being given an assignment. He didn't answer. It would be good for you to be our guard, honey, said Heather. Aaron and I will be too busy making breakfast to keep watch. We need a guard. Susan thought Heather's approach was too much like asking and not enough like telling him, but deferred to her motherly judgment. Blake frowned and stomped off toward the mound tree. I'm going to go look for some extra food, Susan said to Heather. I won't be far, but just to play it safe, you should have this. She handed Heather her husband's rifle. Heather held the rifle at arm's length, as if it were alive. I, I don't, um, I, I never, uh... Your husband didn't show you how to shoot? Oh, no. Heather shook her head vigorously, as if accused of shoplifting. Susan tried not to roll her eyes. He showed me, Aaron offered meekly. He what? Heather spun around. He never said he, that, that you ever... "'Cause he knew you'd freak out,' Aaron said, without looking up. "'But it's not his fault. I asked him if I could, and he said yes. And then one Saturday, when you were shopping—' Her sheepishness became overwhelmed with enthusiasm. He, "'He took me to this shooting place, and it was so cool and so loud. But we had earmuffs, and they helped a lot, and they told me the safety rules and showed me how to load it and the safety and how to sight, and, and I hit the target, Mom. I did. I hit it three times.' Aaron stopped, stuck between a beam of pride and a wince of impending rebuke. "'I don't want to carry that around with me,' Susan said to Heather. And it would be safer if you had something with you while I'm out of sight. Can I give it to Aaron? Heather stood frozen for a long moment. Rapid eye movements betrayed serious mental processing underway. I know the safety rules, Mom. Heather swallowed hard. Her eyes had a sad droop to them. These are different times. Susan understood that to be a yes. She took the rifle from Heather's still-outstretched arm. Aaron took the rifle with the reverence due the Holy Grail. Remember the rules, Susan said seriously. There are four rounds inside, but none chambered. You'll have to rack the bolt, understand? Aaron nodded solemnly. The Holy Grail was being entrusted to her hands. Don't do anything unless it's really serious. And whatever you do, do not let your brother have it. This is very serious. Do you understand? Susan addressed Heather. Blake should not have any guns for a while. He's too unstable right now. Heather nodded with a blank stare. Aaron nodded once. She held the rifle in a muzzle-high ready pose. Susan tried not to smile. I'm going to go look for some pines over that way. Just shout if you see anything unusual. Heather nodded again. Susan worked her way along the brim of the hill. The conifers were very young pine, hemlock, or spruce. Their bark might be edible, too, but she knew pine was, so she continued to look for large pines. I wasn't this difficult or slow to travel with, was I? she muttered then stopped and glanced at her pocket. Eh, don't answer that. She moved partway down the slope to work her way back toward the camp. The sides of the ravine were a mix of oak, maple, and birch. I have no business being a leader, 
Charon said I'm not a leader. I know I'm not a leader. So why am I doing this? She recalled seeing tall pines back near the junkyard, but she didn't want to venture that far. I told them that they wouldn't starve because there were pines. I really need to find some pine trees, she muttered to her pocket. While she stood and surveyed the trees on display along the slope, she heard a scratching and a scrambling sound. Partway down the slope, a gray squirrel was trying to climb out on a branch too thin for his weight. He jumped to another branch, also too thin, which almost flung him off. Susan slowly worked her way down while the squirrel was preoccupied with awkward acrobatics. The squirrel clung to the side of the tree. He was nearly eye-level to Susan. She slowly reeled her arm back. Branches between her and the squirrel looked like they would interfere. She slowly crouched down, trying to get a clear flight line. It looked like enough. The squirrel's tail flipped and fidgeted. She knew he suspected something and was about to bolt. She threw her stick. It clattered against a branch, ricocheting down the hill. The squirrel raced out onto a branch and leapt with newfound grace to another branch and then another, and he was gone. You told me not to take bad shots, but I thought I had to. With a sigh of resignation, she made her way down the slope to retrieve her stick. The snow grew deeper. The large angular rocks lay strewn along the hillside, fallen from the granite bluff of the promontory. She could see a diagonal rip in the smooth snow. Her stick. As she dug in the snow to pull out her hunting stick, she noticed a line of footprints in the snow. Two dots and a V. A space, then two more dots and a V. Rabbit? she asked her pocket. She studied the prints closely. The edges were sharp, so sun and wind hadn't had time to round things. There were still sparkling crystals of snow in the spray kicked out from the prints. Even a few hours of sun would have melted those into a crust. These look new. She followed the prints with her eyes. As the brush and brambles were too thick to actually follow the tracks, looking ahead into the opening that was the power line clearing, she saw no tracks. There were no tracks leading up the slope. Well, unless bunnies have learned to fly. Her eyes scanned the tangle of scrubby stems. Hunkered down in the snow was a brown rabbit. Its ears were laid back so that it resembled a rock. It was a rock with an eye, however. Susan knew that she couldn't get her stick in among the stems. She needed the rabbit to come out into the clearing. There were no handy deadfall branches to throw, as she had at the squirrel back at Byron's camp. There was, however, ample snow for snowballs. She carefully scooped a handful without taking her eye off of the rabbit. It was keeping an eye on her at the same time. She tossed her snowball high, with her arm mostly hidden behind her. Her plan was to bomb the rabbit from above and flush it out. The first snowball landed short and too far left. The second snowball went much too far behind her target. I bet you're laughing little rabbit laughs right now, aren't you? She thought. The third snowball was close enough. It broke on twigs and branches above the rabbit, but the shower of snow was disagreeable enough that the rabbit bounded four leaps into the clearing. Oh, that's perfect. You just stay there, Mr. Rabbit. 
Susan moved as slowly as she could, and still be moving. The rabbit fidgeted, his ears now erect, but he stayed in place. Susan aimed a few feet ahead of the direction the rabbit was facing. When he looked away, she let the stick fly. The rabbit heard the stick and bounded away. It went farther than Susan had calculated, but it hesitated, had second thoughts, and turned. The stick smacked across the rabbit's head. Susan ran, if you could call wading through thigh-deep snow running. She thought she might have to grab it and maybe choke it to death, as there was no solid footing to step on its head. When she got to the scene, there were only holes in the snow. Had it gotten away? Do they burrow under the snow? She felt in one hole and found her stick. She felt in the other hole and touched something soft. It felt like it moved. Out of reflex, she snatched her hand back, but peered into the hole. Brown fur. It wasn't moving. Just in case it was merely stunned, she grabbed the rabbit with both hands as if expecting it to thrash and fight like a crocodile. She had no idea how wounded rabbits might behave. It was limp. Its eyes had that vacant stare. I got it, she whispered. A wide smile spread across her face. I got it. She wanted to shout, but quickly dismissed the notion. She took her jar out of her pocket and held it up to the rabbit. Look at that, will you? Can you believe it? I can't. I'm actually bringing back some special chicken for people. How cool is that, huh? Climbing the steep grade with the rabbit in one hand was no easy task. She wondered if rabbits would be easy to skin, like a squirrel, or difficult, like a raccoon. They probably didn't want to watch her processing it, but she could imagine the satisfied little mmm noises people would make when they were enjoying a hot meal. She might not be the best leader of her little group, but at least she could provide. As she approached the promontory campsite, the smile dropped from Susan's face. Blake sat very near the fire, warming his hands. What are you doing here? Susan asked with more sharpness than she thought prudent. You're supposed to be out there, on guard duty. There's nothing out there, Blake didn't look up. Total waste of time. I was cold. He said you told him he could come back after twenty minutes if there was nothing to see. I never said anything of the kind. Well, don't yell at me. That's what he said, you said. Heather's defense faded. I'm not yelling. Blake, did you tell her I said that? Blake refused to speak or look up. I didn't think that sounded right, Aaron offered. Blake gave her a sideways scowl. What's the point of having a guard who's not there? Susan tried not to raise her voice. There was nothing to see, Blake grumbled. There's nothing to see until there is something, but then you wouldn't be there to see it, now would you? Hello, the camp, boomed a voice behind them. All four in the group stood up suddenly. A man of average height, but substantial girth and a well-trimmed beard, walked slowly toward the camp. He had his hands out as a gesture of peace. In one hand he held an ornately carved walking stick. Beneath an olive-drab cape adorned with foxtails, he wore mismatched coat, bibs, and gloves. His cape was draped over a tall backpack. A lever-action rifle rode in a leather scabbard at his side. Baron Kirk of Southeast Wyndham, my good people. He swept off his wide-brimmed hat with a flourish and bowed as much as his girth would allow. 
At your service. Susan dropped the rabbit, swung her rifle around to the low ready position, and slid off to safety. Oh, no need for tensions, good people, no need at all. He held his hands out further and smiled all the wider. I mean you no harm whatsoever. As I said, though you were perhaps still startled by my appearance and did not quite hear, I am the Baron of Southeast Wyndham, Baron Kirk for short. But it seems silly to stand upon formality in the middle of the woods. You may simply call me Kirk, if you like. As I'd mentioned last week, the Siege of New Hampshire podcast has hit 80 episodes and topped 40,000 downloads. What I've kind of found fascinating is where you listeners live. Podbean provides some basic statistics. Most of the listeners are in the United States. I kind of expected that. There are a lot of Canadian listeners, too. Hi, Darren. Thanks for the coffees. There's a lot more than Darren up there, but his is the name I know. The United Kingdom comes in third. Julie is among them. Hi, Julie. Then comes Australia. There's more than just Chrissy down under, but she's the one I know. Then there's France and Germany, hi MK, and Ireland, hi Catherine. There have been downloads from many other European nations too. Spain, Belgium, Netherlands, Poland, and quite a few downloads from Bosnia and Herzegovina. I wouldn't have guessed that one. There's also some from India, Indonesia, Brazil, and South Africa. When I started this podcast, I hadn't thought about where the listeners might be. I really didn't think you'd be from all over the globe. It's been kind of humbling. I do appreciate all of you for following my story. I especially appreciate my supporters at Buy Me A Coffee and my monthly members at Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon, who help make this podcast possible. Thank you. <laughs>